0: Hello and you are listening to Squash Radio. This is a brand new podcast that wants to bring the inside of Squash to life by serving up the best stories. We are launching this channel with some in-depth interviews with some great people from the Squash world. But we're also trying a little experiment first by doing two versions of each interview. One is the full length interview that Squash Radio had with each guest. And two is a more produced version that takes some of the highlights from each conversation. Making those cuts is actually pretty challenging since we think it's all great content. But let us know what you think. Should we continue to do both? Send us an email to squashradio at gmail.com. Also, if you have any great stories that involve squash, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and thank you for listening. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey there, Squash fans, and welcome to another episode of Squash Radio. We're very excited to bring you this guest today. He's based out of Chicago, and he's a guy that just radiates enthusiasm while even working tirelessly. He's been a pillar of the Squash community in the Midwest, and just in general, is a great guy. This is John Flanagan, who is the athletic director at the University Club of Chicago and is also part of the six-person leadership team to help oversee the strategic direction, finances, and operation of the club. Prior to his role as athletic director, he was the head squash professional at the University Club as well as in Minneapolis, and has also served as the tournament director of three US Open squash championships during his career. In 2015, Squash Magazine named him as part of the Top 50 Most Influential Persons in Squash in the United States. Outside of Squash, he also has a passion for literature, poetry, and music, where he tries to practice almost every day, He writes his own music, and does several performances a year with his band, 30 South. I had the pleasure of overlapping with John at the University Club of Chicago when I was the assistant Squash Pro and assistant tournament director of the Windy City Open for almost 5 years. We've since stayed in close contact and overlapped on several other squash projects. So here's a little overview of what we talk about during our conversation. We kick off the conversation talking about John's path to finding his first squash court, but then shift gears to talk about his role within the global squash community as the tournament director of the Windy City Open, which is one of the top 8 squash tournaments in the world. We do spend a fair amount of time talking about the Windy City Open, and for good reason. There are so many facets to this event, but we start off with the basics on how to get the glass court into the building. So as you may know, in the club industry, there's always an expectation to go above and beyond to deliver. And the story that John shares with us about the Windy City Open and how they get the glass court into the venue, I think illustrates it pretty well. The rest of the time we spend talking about sponsors and how they make the event possible but also the value that the sponsors get out of the event and don't forget to stay tuned for the quickfire round with john flanagan and find out about his new goal that many people might find a significant challenge we hope you enjoyed today's episode and here we go So I've shared a little bit about where John is today in his career, but the path to get there, even as John would describe himself, was a little crooked. We joined the conversation where John was just getting close to finding the sport of squash for the first time, and it would change his life forever.
1: Because uh, although we love Durango, uh, the small town, like uh, we lived in a really, I guess I guess it was isolated. It was way up a valley in a little A-frame shack with uh, no TV, no phone, so. Definitely different from modern life today, but we really liked it. Uh, But it finally started to drive Michelle crazy, I think. So she's a very bright, gifted person. Um, She applied to graduate school. We ended up in Minnesota. She could go to the University of Minnesota. And uh, that's where I first took up squash.
0: I remember you telling me, I mean, you were, I believe you said it was apprentice to a a master candy maker, right? Oh,
1: yeah. that That was in Durango
0: it. Uh, this
1: uh, wonderful gentleman, Everett Sealy, used to work for the Mars uh, Chocolate Factory. You know, it's funny, these cooking jobs I had, like uh, the factory and the bakery, uh, they taught me organizational skills. Uh, mm. Because you had to time everything in the kitchen and in the bakery about you know when you make what when it comes out and you had to have a plan every day and that really helped me
0: yeah the skills that translate over towards uh, any other job yeah but then you found squash so sort of taking a crooked path there but um,
1: so it, well I, what happened there is I got <clears throat> I had illusions of being a, a writer at the time and so Michelle was in graduate school and I was just looking for a part time job where I could go do some writing I actually got a job as a locker room attendant at the uh, Minneapolis Athletic Club, and that's where I first saw squash uh, being played. It was hardball back then. Uh, that was in 1985, 86. And uh, I knew how to string rackets from the time I was a kid uh, and my involvement in tennis, something my brother and I did in the basement of our home to make money. And we, um, in Minneapolis, I, I found out there was a club in St. Paul called the Commodore Squash Club of Revered. Squash Club, and uh, they had you know, big events there. And I called over there to find out how to string a squash racket one day in terms of how high I could put the tension on it. And the pro there um, started talking to me and said, hey, we need somebody to string rackets. And of course, I needed the money. So I went over there and um, met the pro in and, and the club. John Jasinski is the pro's name, one of my mentors, mm-hmm. a great guy. But, you know, I'd never even really heard of squash growing up in a little town in southern Indiana. And I guess going in the door, thought, gosh, you know, I... I Knew a little bit about it. I guess maybe I thought it was going to. Just my impression was it was going to be really snobby, you know, because it's a high-end economic uh, demographic. And but I walked in, and there were all these people like hanging around, drinking beer <laughs> and, uh, from all over the world, and they were all super friendly. And uh, and you well, felt like you'd friends. fit in. Yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, people drinking beer and with a racket around and having a good time. I I could do this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: So uh, actually the first time, the first guy, I'll tell you, the first guys I saw play, I kind of watched like they were like, you know, D hardball players. And, you know, I was a pretty good tennis player. and I watched these guys play. And I'm like, this is the dumbest racket sport I've ever seen in. One night I was stringing rackets late at the uh, Commodore Club, and these uh, two guys, Frank Fermin and Jamie Barrett, both of them had played in college—one at Princeton, one at Yale, I believe. And late at night, they were—you know—after their jobs, were hitting like nine or ten o'clock at night. And I went down and watched them, and I just was kind of awestruck. I was like, "Wow, it's a totally different game from the D players I saw." And these guys were really impressive. So, kind of got me involved in the sport.
0: John was clearly inspired and captivated by seeing the squash professionals for the first time. This is something that John continues to pass along for both current and new squash fans to enjoy with his role in the Windy City Open. We spend a while going through all aspects of the Windy City Open. But first, John shares a story of a crucial component that is needed for any major squash tournament. You need a glass court. Some venues are easier than others to construct these wonderful arenas for squash fans to enjoy. This is what happened in Chicago. Could wind the clock a little bit and talk a little bit about, you know, once the court starts coming in, this is no small feat to get a 20,000 pound court into the university club. And, and yeah. des- describe a little bit about what you and your staff have to do in order to to make that happen.
1: I'd be happy to tell that story, and I'll start with year one, which was uh, uh, almost a catastrophic year that we first brought the glass court in. But, you know, the the club, you know, because you've been there, but uh, for anybody listening, it's, you know, limestone, Gothic, architectural treasure, 108 years old. And as you might imagine, we don't have a big dock area. we don't have a big freight elevator, so fortunately, uh, most of the glass panels will fit on the elevator. But the large frame pieces that support the court or that support the court floor yeah they have we have to get everything up to the ninth floor to our beautiful cathedral hall dining room and uh, when you know, we set up the court in the, the spectator gallery. So these long pieces, uh, they're 16 feet long. The only way to get them uh, up to the ninth floor is to drop our freight elevator below the first level of the, the main floor. And we have a special elevator engineer come in and um, we then go upstairs, a flight of stairs above that, we open up those elevator doors, uh, the doors that you know shield the shaft and uh, we drop a rope down And time around these 16 foot pieces. And then there's two or three guys at the bottom, and we carefully brace them on top of the elevator. And there's people, there's another assistant on top of the elevator, kind of holding them straight and steady. They're not terribly heavy now, they used to be. And then we slowly, slowly take the elevator up, uh, you know, seven or eight floors. And then we open the the elevator, the doors uh, on the floor, the ninth floor, open them up, and then walk that through the kitchen and into the main dining room. I think we have to do that 16 times all the uh, the braces, the support pieces up there. I said, I want want to, I want to, do you have a question? I wanted to rewind back to year one, the first time we did this, because that's a funny story. Yeah. Well, funny, funny now. (laughs) 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 At the time I almost had a heart attack, but you know, we, um, we had a, a miscommunication I'll call it with the, uh, Court company that we used at that time, and um, they were bringing in. Uh, they, I, they told me these pieces they were bringing in were I don't know 18 feet long. And so, chief engineer and I, Marty King, who's a fantastic uh, engineer, uh, crewman, um, uh, team member at the University Club, and I got a you know 18 foot piece of a PVC pipe, walked it through. We figured out we could just make it. You know, if we went through the front lobby and took a turn, we could just make it on top of the freight elevator. Well, what the company didn't tell us uh, was that there was a big three-foot flange at the bottom of that beam, and there's no way we could get those things through. So, you know, (laughs) the first piece we're trying to get through, we can't get it in. It's the first time we've ever done the glass court at the club. And I'm walking around the club with the chief engineer trying to figure out, is there any other way we could get them up to the ninth floor? And we can't find any other way to get them up there. And I'm sweating bullets. <laughs> I think I've worked at the club three or four years, and all the money's there. Everything's ready to go, and you can't get the cord in. Um, but uh, what happened is uh, we figured out, the chief figured out that if we uh, <laughs> cut part of the quarter oak out of our lobby and bust it down a wall, we could make the turn. So uh, he called the general manager, uh, John Spitalet, who's been at the club uh, I think more than thirty five years now, fantastic guy. Comes down and takes a look at the situation and um says, Yeah, let's do it. And uh, I don't have too many general managers of private clubs who would be able to do this, but you know, John actually grabbed the saws off and started cutting into the quartoside oak in the front lobby of his club. And uh yeah, I'm thinking I'm probably gonna be fired uh, when all this is done. <laughs> it just doesn't go First right and
0: last, last board event, right?
1: But we did it, you know, we got everything in and, uh, you know, the lobby, uh, you know, if you didn't know what it looked like before, you wouldn't be able to tell we put it all back together. We got everything up there and uh, got it in. And, you know, that was the start of the glass court in Cathedral Hall. It was very well received.
0: Well, uh, we both know what the dramatic difference can be having a glass court uh, from reviewing experience. But the Winnie City Open has been going on for over 30 years now, and it hasn't always been a glass court. What what was the impetus behind making that transition or the the leap to to bring in the glass court event?
1: Um, I think that's one of the reasons they hired me uh, when I I, I was recruited to come down from the Minneapolis Athletic Club. I run two glass court events in Minneapolis, the U.S. Opens, and I think the club wanted to continue to enhance its reputation. And so they thought, hey, you know, this guy's a, a pretty well-known coach, but he can also run big events. It'd be cool if we could do this at the University Club. So, you know, uh, we tried to get the U.S. Open one year. Uh, early on in my days there, it didn't happen. And to remember who the tournament got awarded to, uh, this was before, way before Kevin Clipstein's time. But no big deal. Uh, we just decided, hey, you know, what the heck? Windy City Open's been around for, you know, 20-something years. That did not have to be the U.S. Open to be a glass court event. We could do a last court event and kind of put the Winnie City Open on the map. So yeah, that's what we decided to do.
0: And so now, uh, I mean, fast forward to where it is today, and the Winnie City Open is one of the World Series events on the world tour. And talk a little bit about, uh, I think we, we all kind of see it come together from the outside, but how do you pull that together from your perspective?
1: Uh, you mean, how did we reach World Series status? Here's yes. A, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um,
1: well, yeah. I mean, after the recession hit, you know, we, I guess having the glass court, you know, a lot of it just centers around you know, the sponsorships you're, and the relationships you're able to build with your sponsors and keep going. Uh, the first ones we did, uh, we had a, uh, they were done with a company called SSA Global. And that company, uh, they were club members, the CEO, uh, the club member, And they ended up selling the company, but we had an agreement to keep it going for a while. And then, like I said, the recession hit, and we had to downsize the tournament because we didn't have any big sponsors. So I think for a few years there, it was, you know, as low as $20,000 and maybe one year, even 10 or 15, I can't remember. And then I think it was four years ago now, a good friend of mine at the club, the Windy City Open tournament treasurer, Lonnie Essex, also a bass player in the band in the past, uh, became friends with Mark Walter. Uh, their children attended the same school, Mark Walters, the CEO of Guggenheim Partners, and he's a big sports fan. He's also uh, I think the major shareholder of the Los Angeles Dodgers and you know Lonnie had been talking to him about squash and how cool it was and uh, I was dying for a sponsor one year, and um they came in Guggenheim Partners came in to sponsor it and it was their first year with us, I think we did um a twenty or thirty thousand dollar event. And Mark came down and looked at it and, you know, saw the squash and brought his family down to watch. And they were, you know what it's like, hon. if you've never seen squash before, pro squash, and uh, you like sports and you like, you know, watching athletes, it's, <laughs> you're pretty, you know, it, it's a pretty amazing experience. So um, he really enjoyed it and liked the way we were doing the event and afterwards pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, Lonnie told me about this glass court thing you used to do, but tell me about that and what kind of players, you know, do you get? And So I explained to him, you know, kind of what it takes in terms of dollars and cents and he said, yeah, okay, I think we'll do it. <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty short, sweet conversation. Uh, they, ju- they jumped in for, um, uh, you know. Not going to quote dollars, but a significant amount—the lion's share of what we needed to get the grass court that first year four years ago—and they loved the event. And then we sat down uh, after that event, or towards the tail end of it, with uh, the PSA uh, executive uh, staff, Lee and Alex Goff, kind of said, "Hey, they, they talked to me about what a World Series event—you know, three-year contract. This is what they're looking for." And the other thing was the—and uh, they wanted—they talked about doing prize money parity at the time, and that—that that turned out to be a really important, uh, very important issue for. Uh, for our sponsor, for Mark Walter and Guggenheim Partners. And I didn't mention Equitrust Life Insurance Company. They joined us this uh, over this three-year deal as well. Very important to both those groups. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, we had a nice conversation with Mark, and he said, hey, let's do it. And then, uh, yeah, this is year three of our three-year contract, and uh, we've really enjoyed the past three years. I mean, it's it's been great to have a World Series event uh, in the Midwest.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would echo just the... Not just the leap of faith, but really the leadership role that the Winnie City Open and uh, guggenheim and Lake we Trust to help bring around the parity issue of prize money in the United States and the world uh, to the forefront I mean it really is it takes events like the Winnie City open to step up and and do it a huge applause yeah, and, and,
1: the, to, and you know I, I'd like just to say the you know, and the u s open i know the u s squash and u s open were really were they the first were you, you know you would yeah. know the answer yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, we were the first, um, the U.S. Open took, took that first leap, but, you know, it's one of those things of of being first, but then uh, you can be out there alone, but to have other people really, no, b- believe in the cause as well. I mean, that's yeah. um, significant, so uh, hats right. off.
1: No, no, we've been thrilled, and it's been great for us. You know, it's, it's another feather in our cap. You know, the, the university club doesn't like to be perceived as a stodgy, you know, old city club. You know, we're not. We're a very progressive club, and The fact that we were able to, the support of all the sponsors were able to say, hey, we offer prize money parity at the highest level for you know the sport has been great for us.
0: Well, beyond um, your title sponsors, I know it takes just a a tremendous amount of other sponsors and patrons to help make this event possible. And you you end up having to be having some of these conversations. And how do you position it to make it a a win-win for your sponsors and and the event?
1: Well, I think for... Um, for our event, anyway, the biggest, I guess, I, the biggest thing I think is, is for the audience that's there. It's it's a fantastic client entertainment event at what I think is a fairly good value. You know, we our corporate sponsorships at the the entry level is four thousand dollars, then seven thousand, then twelve thousand five hundred, then twenty five thousand, and then title sponsorship, which is a big number. But, um, you know, you talk to people about how much they would spend on a golf event for their clients' entertainment and it goes up into the thousands pretty quickly. You know, for $4,000 or $7,000, you can entertain several clients every day over a seven-day period. And, you know, we have a, a wonderful uh, corporate sponsors lounge that we set up courtside. And our club is known for its uh, fine dining as well. So the, the food service there, it's, it's not like you're just have a bunch of, you know, pieces of pizza and some hamburger. It's really, you know, fantastic food that the sponsors get and open bar there for them too. So there's that piece of it. And then the entertainment is, you know, the, you know, pro squash is captivating and it's fascinating. And the players have great personalities and they're approachable. And uh, I guess I wouldn't say finally, but there's the kind of a coup de grace, you know, the glass court in Cathedral Hall is it's unique, you know. A sporting event, a world, a, a world-class uh, sporting event, in a, in a venue where they're it's surrounded by hand-painted glass, uh, and a 24-foot ceiling, and all these beautiful carved um, uh, arches on the top. It's so t- totally unique, and um, uh, it's an intimate experience for a pro sporting event. I and mean, you, you've been a part of it <laughs> as an assistant yeah. director uh, a couple of years, and and you've seen it, I think, as a spectator a little bit too. I mean, it's, you have to admit it is. It's, it's Pretty unique and cool, right?
0: It's one of the most unique settings I think on the tour. Definitely the the cathedral Cathedral Hall itself uh, sets it apart from a lot of the other events on the world tour. So it's yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's definitely uh, it, it's unique and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's and you and I've talked about this before because I know you know when you were directing the U.S. Open, it's it's a blessing and a curse. It's it's a beautiful, absolutely stunning setting, and but at the same time, it's it's a not that big of a venue
0: for for
1: the, for the event. And so it's, um, we do wish sometimes we had a little more space to spread things out a little bit, but, uh,
0: um, well, I think that, you know, one of the nice things or the great things that the PSA tour has done is with squash TV, you know, that you're reaching a wider audience. So all that effort, uh, it's, you're, you're maximizing the impact for the community within the Chicago area, but then the world community can also enjoy it. So I think, yeah. um, uh, it's been a huge component for uh, the tour and, and each event. Um, yeah, so I think, so you've been in the lead role of having to sell, quote, sell squash, and uh, as have I. And there was a NPR piece that came out. It was both a radio piece, but then also a nice article that just kind of, it's, it kind of reaffirmed, I know what we've been saying for so many years, just how great uh, a, a value of sponsoring a squash tournament can be. And, and that it, I, I believe the quote was that go, uh, squash is the new golf in terms of right. the client clientele it can reach. And um, as you know, the the sports marketplace and sports sponsorship is such a crowded marketplace that you you need new opportunities to reach those clients. I mean, yeah, I
1: saw that article, yeah, and yeah, you're you're right. I mean, it's it's yeah. You know, I guess I'd say my experience generally has been if if I'm talking to someone at a company and they are not familiar with squash, it, it's definitely a harder sell because they don't really know what they're getting into. If they know squash and they know what it is, then they know the demographic and. I think they they understand the value of it. The trick is you know just getting people who you know have not been exposed to it to see the value in that they can even though the demographic might not be quite as large as you know it's definitely not as large as golf. I guess it's very targeted and it's a very elite group. I don't have any of the statistics off the top of my head in terms of you know the the net worth of the median the median net worth of the squash player, but it's very high, and lots of decision makers and companies involved in the sport. One of the cool things about pitching it at the club is, uh, you know, we, can, uh, we look at the statistics when I'm talking to someone and saying, we, you know, we, these are the national statistics, but we think at the club, the statistics, and you can raise the bar a little bit because of, you know, we are a university club. That means you have to have a degree just to, to be a member of the club, so, and we know our demographic, mm-hmm. so it's a great connection. But, you know, we're trying to get a watch company involved and a card company involved, and right. uh, that's, been a, that's been a tougher sell, I think, probably because it doesn't have as much mass media
0: reach well I, I, I love numbers and I've, I've had to uh, be fairly close to these numbers in the past so I can fill that uh, data for you it's a 98% of squash players have graduated from college on average the um, they have over $300,000 of income coming in per year and over 1.5 million dollar net worth and 36% of the players also have a C-suite status or the owner or president of a company
1: Right. Right. So that's one of the, definitely one of the pitches we make is like, you know, Hey, when you're, when you're a corporate sponsor here, it's, it's, it's not just, uh, the broad reach that squash TV can give you. It's the people in the audience you're sitting next to in the lounge, you know, and that's one thing I really try to do, uh, because it is a smaller crowd and a more intimate setting. I try to connect sponsors with other sponsors and so they can make new relationships, make friendship. And a lot of good business is done, you know, courtside and uh, on the golf course, whatever. So much of it is about relationships and, uh, when you share an experience, it, it really has an impact sometimes on what happens next, business relationship.
0: Absolutely. Well, in in terms of looking towards uh, the 2017 Windy the Open, what are you most excited about? I mean, you've been doing this for so many years, but uh, I think there's there's always something new coming up. And so w- what are you excited about for this year?
1: Well, last year, we started um, kind of following with U S squash and U S open and the tournament of champions they launched a, I think maybe five or six years ago, a women's leadership award program. And we thought this is something we should definitely be doing as well. So we did it last year. And um, through um, one of our committee people uh, who's also um, connected with our, our corporate sponsor, with our title sponsor, Kim Walter, Mark Guggenheim's wife, uh, very involved in a lot of uh, civic activities in Chicago. And uh, we told her about this and wanted to do, we're looking for speakers. Last year, she was able to get Jackie drina Kersey for us as a speaker, which was you know fantastic to have her there. So I started working with Kim last fall, talking about who we could get. And you know, I grew up playing tennis. I mentioned that earlier. We're very excited this year to have Billie Jean King coming as our keynote speaker. You know, she's uh, a pioneer in social justice and equality issues uh, for women in sport, women in business. Uh, needless to say, she's also a tennis legend. I, I think she's got like 39 Grand Slam titles. Yeah. And no, uh, I, you know, I was like maybe 10 or 12 years old when she played Bobby Riggs and I had older sisters who played tennis and I just wanted, you know, her to beat Bobby Riggs so badly. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, although the whole thing was kind of gimmicky, it really brought a lot of things to light in terms of parity for sport, and it was a big boom for tennis. So, get um, to meet Billie Jean King. I guess that's it's, it's you know related to Windy City. I'm really excited that I get to meet her, and that uh, she's going to be in our club.
0: Yeah, what, I mean, what a great role model and legend, uh, living legend, really. And um, you know, it's fitting with what Windy City Open's done with parity and prize money that she will be able to attend and and celebrate that. So that's great.
1: Yeah, no, it's fantastic, and. Of course, you know. I mean, like you said, what's you know? I, I'm excited about the pro squash. I I, I do get to watch a bit, uh, even though I'm running around trying to make sure everything's going well. You know, there's some exciting matches from the first round in the men's match. If if the if no one pulls out, which you never know, you know, we've got Rami Ashur and James Volstrop, uh in the first round. I mean, how how crazy is that for a first round match? It's like that could be a <laughs> final.
0: <laughs> yeah, two former world number ones battling out round yeah. one, and then well, we've also
1: got. Paul Cole facing um, Mohamed El-Sherbagi. Oh, wow. You know, Paul Cole's definitely been a comer. And uh, I think Mohamed, you know, if I were him, like number one seed, no, pr- you know, no pressure on the other guy coming in, you know. Right, right. That uh, could be a good one.
0: Well, that's really exciting. And um, I'm sure all the hard work that, that you and your team put in, I mean, the community just thoroughly enjoys it. And so, you know, thank you for all the hard work you do on behalf of the Chicago and world <laughs> World Squash community.
1: Uh-huh. You're welcome. It, makes- it is, you know, it is a lot of work and there are days when you pull your hair out, but the fan, one of the fantastic things about it is, you know, like you talked about the communities, just first of all, the, like kind of staff community, the, the university club and the athletic department team, you know, John Rooney, Yoni Ellis, and Tanisha Tillman really work with me hand, you know, side by side to pull the event off. And then we've got, you know, two committees, probably a total of about 20 people, then tons of volunteers really, you know, help pull it all together. And one thing we haven't talked about is Metro Squash and guess for a World Series event. We're we're kind of a we're an oddity, you know. We're a hybrid. We're a club event but at the same time. We have this really top level status as a pro event. We we don't really run the event to make the club a lot of money. Uh, we try to run it pretty close to break even, maybe make a little money. But our goal is to donate a chunk of cash to Metro Squash at the end of it. And uh, they've been at the heart of our community. We've been they've been a part of our event since they first came, incorporated in I guess 11 years ago now a part of it. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to to keep it going. We'll keep it going as long as we can. <laughs> so, good problem.
0: The University Club of Chicago and its squash program are part of the upper echelon of squash in the United States. We asked John for his thoughts on some of the key ingredients on how they developed their successful programming.
1: Well, I'd say the first one is don't think it can't be done. It's like when, when I started there, there weren't there wasn't any junior squash at the club. And I started, and, you know, it's like, you you know, part of your brain just thinks, well, you're downtown. And of course, some people live downtown, but not a lot of people live downtown. And, you know, you're never going to get kids coming in after school. You're never going to, you know, maybe you'll have some weekends, but that's it. If you'd have told me when I started that our junior program would be as robust as it is now, I probably <laughs> would not have bought it. But, you know, so we started, you know, doing stuff on the weekends when I was there and, you know, it started to grow and grow and you know, then we figured out the kids really needed to play more. So we started to have like more kind of informal social play days with the kids and got all these, you know, young squash playing members. A lot of them are gonna have kids eventually and then they're gonna want their kids to share in the sport they love and it's been a, a a great situation for the club. We've really attracted more members just because of our junior program. You know, once you get critical mass, uh, other juniors are going to want to come to to play at your club. I think so setting you know, setting a vision. Yeah, right. Setting a vision and then not, then just you know also just like don't believe out of the box that it can't be done because it's not been done before. When I talk to other club pros, like in big cities, sometimes and they're kind of like, oh well, we can't get any families downtown. Proven that's not true. You can, and you know, we've even had families relocate from the Burbs to the downtown. Believe it or not, just so the kids could be closer uh, to the club. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of good club pros out there. It's just, you know, a lot of it is just building relationships with as many people as you can, and offering opportunities to make it easy for people who've never played the game before. To get into the game, I, you know, a program that we offered when I first started, that we recently rejuvenated uh, because so many we have still so many people who want to get into the game is called a squash crash course. Where we um, take as many as eight people on two courts who've never played the game before, and uh, at the end of an hour and a half, they they know the basic rules and we've got them playing and they're having a good time. From there, we usually get I'd say at least half of those people end up sticking with the sport. Maybe not right away, but eventually they come back to it. And even if they don't, they've experienced what it's all about. Yeah, it's just, you know, little things like that, you know, and we've been trying to grow our women's program for the past few years. I started a program uh, called Wine, Women, and Squash, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> which you know you throw wine in the title it's bound to get some fans right away but basically it's just a mixer and then after the uh, hour and a half mixer anybody who wants to uh, join us we go down to the president's bar at the club and have some food or snacks or just a quick drink if somebody has to go on the run and those have been extremely successful the one i ran last month had 16 and 16 women come and sometimes some of the girls in our junior program will come join them on the court squash is an easy sell once you get people on the court it's, it's a really fun game
0: now it's time for the quick fire portion of our interview. This is where I ask each guest the same questions to hear their range of answers and advice. If you have any questions you'd like our guests to answer, or if you have a great answer to one of these questions yourself, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Either way, we hope you enjoy this portion of squash radio. As we move into the quickfire, fire, hopefully this isn't as, um, as daunting for you. <laughs>
1: Well, uh, I, always, I always say, don't give advice unless someone asks you for it. But you asked me, so I, I don't. I'm not sure how I did, but there you go.
0: Oh, that was great. Um, so, quick fire. Uh, moving on to this segment. I mean, this is you can answer as quick or as long as you want. There's no no time on this at all. Um, starting off was it with it figured your- out
1: by now. Me answering short is probably not my strength, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> your favorite movie or documentary?
1: Favorite movie or documentary?
0: Maybe these will be harder. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, it's because I like so many movies. It's it, it's really challenging, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna show that I have a nerdy side and say Lord of the Rings.
0: Any one of them uh, stands out, or just the entire uh, as a series? Uh,
1: the, yeah, the trilogy. If I had to pick one, I guess I'd pick the first one, The Fellowship of the Rings. I can all my bandmates, if they ever listen to this, are going to be making fun of me for being a nerd, but that's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Um, what is something or an activity that gives you Disproportionate amount of happiness.
1: Daddy playing guitar. Yeah, yeah, no doubt.
0: And how how often do you try and play?
1: Um, I try to play every day, but I don't succeed in that effort. I would probably say I play four or five times a week. Sometimes it's only twenty minutes, but other times it's you know two hours. I guess you know I have I haven't been competing that much lately. But I'll say I will say that I get a disproportionate amount of pleasure after winning a tough match. I just haven't won one in a long time, so. <laughs>
0: There you go. Is there anything that you have tr- you're have, thinking of trying or have tried recently that's new to you? And
1: um, Anything I've tried recently that's near to me, is that what you said? New to you. New to me. You know, that, that's a good question for me because I have my spiel for uh, the new year for members to motivate everybody. And as well as my staff and I is get out of your comfort zone. So uh, that's the uh, thing I've been trying to encourage them to do. That's how we grow, right? You have to get out of your everything you're comfortable with, do some different things. So uh, the thing, I haven't done it yet, but I've been working on it, is uh, I'm going to, I'm not much of a singer. I can carry a tune, but I'm going to do uh, a solo performance at an open mic night with a friend of mine that we've been working on. And they're, they're songs that I've written. It's a double level of discomfort, not oh, just... Wow. Uh, not just performing, you know, singing solo on the stage uh, with have a little backup, but uh, singing songs that I've written too. Looking forward to it, but yeah, that's it, uh, new to me.
0: <laughs> I like it. Well, I can't wait to hear how it goes. Uh, do, yeah. do you have Have you scheduled it, or are you still? Uh...
1: No, it's a it's uh, it's going to have to wait till after the Windy City Open. The local place that I'm, I'm going to perform at is uh, they do it on Tuesday nights, and currently that's when my band is practicing, so it's going to have to wait till March. I'll send you a special invitation card.
0: All right, well, I have to make a special trip. Is there uh, an inspiring talk or video that you could recommend that someone could easily find on the internet?
1: Let's see, I can tell you that I don't spend a lot of time on the internet surfing. Um, I tend to get, I read New York Times online and that
0: kind of stuff. Um, or, or or an article, um, um, anything that's easy to share. Wow um, pal, nothing is coming to mind there, sorry. Well, gonna, the, seg- that's all right. This this one uh, can segue nicely. If you had to give a TED talk, you, you're familiar with TED talks, though, right?
1: Yes, I am.
0: Okay. If you had to give a TED talk, but the rules were it couldn't be something that you you're known for, so you had to go try and explore something and share it. What what would you want to do?
1: Um, I'd give talk something I'm not known for. I would talk about I'd probably talk about poetry. Interesting. Why? Well, um, you know, that's, uh, it was one of my fields of study, and I do still write a little bit. I think in, in many ways it's kind of a you know, people have lost the appreciation for it. I think, you know, hip-hop comes the closest to being a, an active part of that still. So that would be new to me to talk about that. I'd probably address it in terms of uh, hip-hop and, and modern lyrics and, and how that's addressed, as well as what's going on with contemporary poetry.
0: Have you heard much of the, the Hamilton soundtrack?
1: Um, I, I've heard bits and pieces, but uh, we actually, my family and I went to see Hamilton. Oh my uh, gosh.
0: even <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the amount it of people was, that have seen it, you can count. So you saw it?
1: Yeah, it was, our, it was a Christmas present for, you know, uh, Michelle. And I've got, you know, two sons, Aiden and Kian, uh 18 and 16. And both of them really like history. And of course they, they're teenagers, so they love hip hop. So they loved it. Yeah. And I loved it too. It was fantastic. I, I I would urge you to see it. Are you familiar with the soundtrack?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've I've only, um, to, to see it as something I would love to do. I I listen to the soundtrack uh, regularly and, um, I mean, it was just, I mean, talk about Lin-Manuel Miranda's complete genius and, just my brain lights up when I hear it, and it really taps into. I think you said like it's it's lyrical, it's it's poetry, and it's history, all combined into one. That it, it just, so. Yeah, it's, what a
1: genius. So, hey, I'm gonna flash back to your earlier question. I thought of something that I would recommend that people watch because it has to do with Hamilton. Um, it's a show I'd honestly never watched before, but I was channel surfing. This was like six weeks ago, and uh, I saw Drunk History. Have you ever seen this show called <sighs> Drunk History? Yes, and Lynn Manuel Miranda is the guest.
0: Oh and, no way!
1: And, yes, and he tells the story. He basically tells you the story of Hamilton, the, the musical. But like he tells the story of Alexander Hamilton and these two women. I can't remember the actresses' names, but you'd recognize them. Uh, and, oh my and gosh. They're perfectly cast, and they play uh, the two main uh, characters, Hamilton and um, Burr. And uh, oh my god, it's absolutely hilarious. And Lynn Manuel Miranda's trash, and he's telling the story and everything. So uh, well, you can probably find you could probably I find can... that online.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I can't believe I haven't seen that yet. So I'm going to have to go. Uh, uh,
1: You've got to check it out. It's hysterical. And, and I will, yeah, really.
0: for sure. Okay. All right. Uh, and this is the last question. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think we need a drum roll, but we'll do one anyway. <laughs> um, and this is in your wheelhouse. If you could recommend any book, you know, it could be one book or books that people would read, what would it be and why?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm an avid reader. I, I read, you know, I read on the train back and forth. So that, that's a really challenging one for me. Um, I would say one of the best nonfiction books I've read uh, in years, I think it's called Being Mortal or On Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. I think it's G A W A N D E. I think is his last name. He's a physician and he talks about aging and uh, death in our society. And what it's become and how to handle it. And, uh, you know, my parents uh, have both passed away, but if they were part of the aging population right now, uh, it's a book I would have found invaluable. And so, and even uh, I find it invaluable, even as we're all going to die, I think, you know, nobody's going to get, <laughs> nobody gets out of here alive, as Jim Morrison said. Um, so it's a, it's a great book to read to think about end of life, you know, it's a tough topic that. A lot of people don't talk about, but this guy, this physician, Dr. Gwande, talks about it honestly and with great research and beautifully. So how do you recommend that one? Being mortal.
0: Well, that actually sounds very interesting. And it's, it's a topic that, that actually really interests me because it is, there are tough conversations and topics to have. And so any tool or resource to really kind of break it down and, and humanize it, I would love to read. So uh, being yeah, mortal. He,
1: yeah, he He's great at asking the right questions and making you think about them in a, in a positive fashion. Um, uh, and what's the other see? one? Um, I have to, yeah, that, 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 that's a tougher call. Well, I'll tell you one that I love, just a, a beautiful uh, novel, if I can think of the title of it. Ann Patchett is the author. And um, Bel Canto, I, I can't that's, it's a novel. Uh, actually, it was made into an opera. Um, uh, played in Chicago last year. Unfortunately, I missed it. So, yeah, Bel Canto. And the author is Ann Patchett. And the story is about an opera star who is imported to this um, Banana Republic. They've also imported this Japanese uh, business leader who's his favorite singer is this this woman, this diva. And that's why he comes and they're trying to get him to do a business deal. What happens is these um, guerrilla, political guerrilla group takes over the house the, the night of performance and hold her hostage. And it's a story about what transpires uh, in the house as they're holding them hostage. It doesn't sound that fantastic maybe, but it's extremely well written and and the relationships that developed with the hostages and uh, the girls, it's, uh, it's really a really beautiful novel.
0: Wow. Well, that's, uh sounds like a good one to, to check out. So, you know, on that note, I just want to thank you for, for spending this time, I, I especially given that it's really in the thick of the season for you and how busy you are and, and juggling so many things. So I appreciate you taking uh, so much time and everything you've done for the sport.
1: Uh, my pleasure. It was really fun talking with you, and I hope uh, the listeners find the conversation uh, interesting. And if anybody, this is the final plug, if anybody wants to come to see the Windy City Open and see some of the great stuff we were talking about, tickets are still available at WindyCityOpen.com, February 23rd through March 1st is the tournament. And Connor, I know you're busy too, but we'd love to see you out
0: there. No, i love to be there. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time, John. Really appreciate it. All right. All right. Yeah, my pleasure, Connor. Take care, man. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves Squash? that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport, well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.